Welcome to the St. Clair College Women in STEM Speaker Series Podcast. I'm your host, Sue Taylor, and I am the Program Manager of Innovation, Entrepreneurship, and Student Experience at the Genesis Entrepreneurship Centre, located in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. This podcast was developed to highlight women who have excelled in male-dominated industries and environments, women who are leaders, and women who serve to inspire and act as role models and mentors to young women, which we like to refer to as STEM champions. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering and Math, and has most recently included Entrepreneurship and Manufacturing. Our goal is to support and foster these women and show that then they can accomplish all they set out to achieve and then some. Stay tuned to learn more about women working in STEM, their journeys, their challenges, their accomplishments, and so much more. This is the Women in STEM Speaker Series Podcast. So today's guest is from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and works as a forensics explosive chemist. So I'd like you to please welcome Melanie Brochu. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So let's start with our usual question is, so tell me a little bit about yourself and sort of where you're from, you know, where, what you studied, how long, you know, work life, family life, children, anything like that. So yes, my name is Melanie Brochu. Uh, As Susan said, I work for um, the RCMP as an explosive chemist. I have been there for 16 years, uh, not the entire time as an explosive chemist, the last 13 years in that role. But I'm from Sudbury, Ontario. And if there's anyone from Sudbury uh, watching this tonight, I'm actually from Chelmsford, Ontario, because they always make me do that distinction. But uh, I went to school. I grew up in Chelmsford. I went to school in Sudbury. Uh, I went to Laurentian University, where I studied forensic biology. So originally intended to go into university to, to study biology, to do a biology undergrad and hopefully get into medical school. But that changed uh, in my second year, and I went into forensics at Laurentian. Following that, I went to college um, and uh, did chemical engineering in college um, and then found my way to the RCMP in 2005. I am a mom of two lovely girls, um, eight and 11 years old, Katzia and Michaela, and they will be watching this. So I told them I would absolutely mention them. Yeah, those those are probably the best teachers I've had uh, in this lifetime is those two precious ones. So oh, I love give them a shout out. Absolutely. <laughs> <They deserve. laughs> That's awesome. So you, you talked about graduating from school. So how many students were in your graduating class? Like and, and of that, how many of them were women in the programs you studied? It's funny because I was really trying. You know, it's funny the things that you forget as you get older and um I was trying to remember my graduating class, and I think we were at least seven, mm-hmm. maybe nine, definitely less than 10 that graduated because we were the first first year of that program. Um, so that was the first year the program was conceived. We were the first graduating class, and we were actually mostly women. There was probably, if there were seven of us, there were five women and two men. Wow. Okay. Um, now, it's not surprising because it was a biology uh, course, and it tends to be a little bit more um, heavy with women in biology, mm-hmm. biology programs, but was that at Laurentian or is that your, the college that, uh, program that you did? When I went to college, it was a chemical mm-hmm. course. It was definitely more guys, you know, 
being the engineering sort of base there, we were probably a handful of girls and the rest were guys. I don't exactly remember how big our class was, but um, I'd say probably a third were women, two thirds were, were men. Yeah. Are there other schools in Canada that have those programs? So for the forensic sport program specifically? Yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, there are. At the time, I feel like it was Laurentian University in Sudbury of all places and Toronto. Um, but I know there's other universities now that have the course. There's one university in Montreal. There's one in BC. So UBC has it, U of T. Laurentian University still has their forensics program. And I think St. Mary's in Halifax also still has a forensics program. I think there's a couple of colleges as well that do maybe some forensic type certificates or diplomas of some kind. But in terms of university, I think those are the only ones. Yeah. And so what attracted you to it in the first place was somebody, which do you have an influence for that or you, how did you find out about the program? So <laughs> oddly enough, I had no interest in it. I don't, I don't think I had ever even watched CSI at the time. Um, I probably had some awareness of CSI, but wasn't really into it at the time. I was going in, like I said, for a biology undergrad. My sole mission in school was to get to medical school and become a heart surgeon. That was it. That was my path. Um, and then in my second year, um, they, they developed the forensics program. Mm -hmm. And I looked into a little bit further and I thought, this is interesting, you know, where science intersects law and seems like it would be pretty cool. The professor uh, who developed the program was a forensic anthropologist, so was working in forensics. And I thought, hmm, I'll try it. I knew if I, um, if anything, it would just be more fun, a fun way to spend my four years in undergrad. But I went into that program and I swear within three weeks, that was it. I was sold and I knew that that was what I was meant to do. I was meant to be in the forensics field, um, wherever that took me. I wasn't quite sure which way I would go in forensics, but I knew that it had to be some type of law and science mix because it just became a passion of mine. So now do you watch shows like CSI and like forensic files and go wrong? No. Yeah. <laughs> for, do you watch it for content <laughs> and want to call the producer and tell them? <laughs> University. I absolutely did start to watch it and for what it was. And then I stopped because it was, it was already so much a big part of my day. It was kind of the last thing I wanted to do in the evening. And so what I really got into was a little bit more on the forensic psychology side. Like I started reading more books about that because I found that interesting. But no, I, I did. I And I don't watch CSI today. Although I feel like, you know, the, the biggest problem with those shows is really just the timing, mm -hmm. right? They have to make everything happen in an hour. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Not the reality. And cases it's, can go on for months and years. Exactly. But otherwise, I mean... It seemed pretty accurate at the time. I was like, it's not so bad, except I wouldn't really pick up a blade of grass and be able to tell you which, you know, species of grass that was. But <laughs> I, I um, came from a medical background. And so I always watch House and always am like questioning the diagnosis all the time and trying to guess what it is, too. So I totally get that. <laughs> so let's talk about your actual position. So forensic explosive chemist, like what does that entail? What's your day to day look like? Like. Are you in a lab? Are you out on, out on scene? What's your day? Talk. Tell us about your day. You know, since I posted that I was going to do this, um, I posted on my social media that I was going to do this interview. And it's funny how many people have gone like, wow, that's a bad A title. You know, like, holy. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, well, if I can just start with like, you know, I work in a forensic lab. 
you know, there's multiple disciplines in a forensic lab. So for anyone who's listening and, and wants to get into forensics, you know, it's I'm on the chemistry side or what we call trace evidence. But there's also the biology side that does the DNA. We have our toxicologists that screen for drugs and alcohol and body fluids. Um, we have our firearm section. We have a counterfeit section. And so it's we do actually end up all working together for, you know, probably mostly for me with the DNA and the biology side, you know, we do end up working together because really to solve a crime, it's not like a, it's not just one discipline that's going to make it happen. So, um, when I actually first started at the lab, I started in the biology section. Um, that was really just because they were the only ones hiring. And Mm -hmm. luckily I had a strong enough biology background to get in, into the biology section. Um, it's not until a few years later that uh, openings finally came up into chemistry um, and I was able to go into the chemistry section there. In Ottawa itself, we do explosives analysis and we do gunshot residue analysis. I'm actually almost qualified on the gunshot residue side. Mm-hmm. But a day to day for me right now, I'm just going to sit to the explosive side is um, is entirely different than it was eight years ago. Um, you know, eight years ago, day to day was you came into the lab, you had your casework, you know, exhibits were sent from a scene from an investigator, exploded devices, commercial explosives would come in. And it was all about just identification. Mm-hmm. Tell me what was in there. Tell me what was used, you know, write the report and make sure everything's kosher per court. Mm-hmm. Um, it was That was the gist of it. And that was fun and exciting. And, you know, there was a lot of training involved in that. And as I, as anyone can imagine, it's not really training you get in school. Um, it's really, you know, really on the job training. Like it's, it's, it's really changed now. You know, I think it's pretty prevalent in um, the media. We talk a lot about terrorism. We talk a lot about homemade explosives today. And, and that's really changed our day to day incredibly. So, you know, now we still do the regular casework. You know, I'm still in the lab from from time to time. Um, and often enough, you know, those kinds of things get driven more from street gangs with a mix of drugs and explosives. But now today we're we've just become way more dangerous and police have to be way more cautious today. So there's a whole officer safety issue when we're talking about homemade explosives because they're the ones that are going to the scene uh, for the most part or they're the first responders on scene you know and and they need to make sure that they get home safely at night and with homemade explosives there's a huge danger in that there's a danger of not knowing how stable the materials are not knowing really what you have because it's just a white powder on a counter Um, and some of these explosives are extremely sensitive, you know, where people today are making primary explosives, which basically means it's super sensitive to heat. So a match could initiate it. So we do a lot of opinion. We do a lot of technical reach back for them. They call us and they're at a scene and they're, here's what I'm, I'm standing in front of. What do I do? Right. And so with that as well is just providing opinion on terrorism related publications, a new publication comes out, um, you know, we have to provide opinion on if what they're saying is actually making sense. Is it viable? If somebody actually made it the way they're telling them to make it, will they survive that at the end of the day or the way they're making it isn't safe and, and you know, they're going to lose a couple fingers. So it's really, it's really become a lot more use of the chemistry knowledge because 
we, we really are just limited by our creativity today. We have to be as creative as the 15 year old kid in his garage, who's just super brilliant and what to do, but pushes the boundaries and tries new mixtures, you know? So that's really become a big focus for us. Now with that, we need to train our officers. We need to educate them because they don't all have a chemistry background. And I say officers, it is for the most part, you know, bomb techs that we train, mm-hmm. but we do also train our ident officers. Um, they come through, investigators come through for, you know, uh, chemistry of explosives training, just so that they can have an understanding of what they're going to encounter when they're out of scene. The constable would have to be able to recognize what's going on so they can call the bomb tech and then call you. So Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, we, we've provided training. Even firefighters have come have come for training as well. So any first responder, anyone that can actually walk into a scene or, you know, a a clan lab, like a clandestine lab scene, which is not always obvious if it's drugs or explosives when you're talking about basic chemicals um, that sort of cross over quite a bit between Mm -hmm. the two. So, yeah. So, you know, very much more training. We're giving a lot more training. Uh, we have to synthesize explosives for our training because it's not something you can just go buy off the shelf. So it's not something you can buy commercially. Sorry, is what I'm trying to say. You actually can buy the chemicals off the shelf, but not the actual um, homemade explosives. So we synthesize quite a bit um, for our bomb techs to be able to get a comfort around handling the material. Um, and for a while, we were also doing canine training, which is, oh, that was ah. like my favorite things to do you know, in in my role today, that's definitely still to this day stands out for me um, as one of my most favorite things. That was actually the next thing I was going to ask you. So what is the coolest thing about your job? So clearly the canine part is (laughs) just because you're a dog lover or just because it was cool to do. (laughs) 100% a highlight, you know, we've had to to stop doing any type of external training at the moment, uh, largely driven because of COVID, but also because we're just such a small unit. Um, and we don't have the resources to be able to, to train everyone, right? There, it's like, you know, we, we, we have to train our bomb techs. That's always going to happen. We're never going to give up that service. But um, unfortunately, we've had to cut in some places. And, and canine was one of them, which is really too bad. Mm-hmm. Because they're really the ones that screen, you know, um, rooms and screen areas and screen airplanes and, and vehicles and all that to keep our, you know, VIPs and dignitaries safe. But um, it, I'm sure it will come back. Um, and I look forward to that day. So definitely one of my favorite things is the canine training. However, yeah, there's been a lot of cool things, as you can imagine. Hmm. It's kind of like... I, I wanted have, to have you on here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I you have cool stories. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of have to pinch myself sometimes, right? Because it's like, did I just seriously get to do this? Yeah. Like, this is not something I ever pictured for myself years ago, you know, or when I was in university that I would actually be getting to do stuff like this. But, you know, the fun stuff, the stuff that's just to play around and have fun are the range days. And usually we end up going to military range um, and it's like a demo day. So it's like a day where, you know, either the military or the police just have a ton of expired explosives or explosives from their um, storage areas that they need to get rid of because they've had too much, whether they've confiscated them or whatnot, but they just need to have a big burn day. And those tend to be my favorite because then we, we talk about very, very large amounts of explosives all dumped into one big giant hole in the ground. And, um, you just get to drive a kilometer away and 
feel the earth shake from a kilometer away. Like it was just some of the coolest days are those days. We talked oh. earlier about different things that, um, and you were ta- using some, like some of the language, like uh, you talked about charge before when we were talking earlier. So what's some terminology that you can share with us that about that is specific to your job? Cause I thought that was cool. Cause you, t- you say it so offhandedly. And yet I was like, Hey, I didn't want to act like I didn't know what you're talking about. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> Basically, to have like a successful explosive, you need all the same elements that you need to be able to build a fire with, right? You need a fuel, you need oxygen, and you need an initiation source. So for a fire, like the wood is the fuel, the oxygen is drawn from the air, right? We need to get the air flow to keep the burn going, to sustain the burn, and, and but we need to light it. And so it's essentially the same principle with explosives. So we need an oxidizer what we call an oxygen so our source of oxygen and we need a fuel Mm -hmm. Um, but in explosives those are chemical sources of oxygen and chemical fuels so it's not like a piece of wood we're talking about chemical compounds Mm -hmm. we're making them together um, and then we initiate them so initiate them meaning we we like them we it could be as simple as a match Mm -hmm. if it's enough um, but it might also need what we call a detonator. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like a small amount of explosives to initiate the larger charge, which is the larger mass of explosives is what I'm talking about when mm-hmm. I say that. Or you've probably heard things like boosters. You know, these are very like familiar terms for people in industry, like mining industries or construction industries. But yeah, if I say stuff and you're like, huh, just stop me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it's a good for definition because again, you hear the stuff when we're watching TV shows like that. So it's nice to kind of have that background because they, they talk about it in the same way. They don't explain it when they're on TV too, either, right? So yeah, they just so throw it out. Have you, uh, uh, besides your range days and that, what about cases? I don't know if you can talk about them or not, but are, do you, have you had any interesting cases that uh, you've worked out? Obviously ones that are public knowledge that um, you've had experience with that you can talk to sure. us about or share anything? I, thought I need to tell you though, my one of my coolest um, moments for me was first came into the explosive section and I went for training for explosives training um, with the FBI and we got to go to Quantico. That was probably as like a young woman freshly into her explosives career was probably one of the coolest things too. I needed to add that one that that warranted mention because <laughs> it's just and now I see it on TV or I see it in movies right and I'm like man I was there like that's so cool. <laughs> okay so actually oddly enough i had the same experience my um i have an aunt whose best friend was in the fbi as a supervisor and we got to go visit quantico and see it so when you're watching like silence of the lambs and they they're running through the forest i was like we were there so i totally get that that's too funny <laughs> that's cool. very very cool but i didn't get to do cool stuff while i was there i just got a tour very different so two big cases come to mind for me that I personally worked on. You know, we've had definitely a good handful of cases come through our lab that were quite big, but the two for me that really stand out was, I'm going to say their names. So it's fine because it's all public knowledge anyway, Mm -hmm. but Aaron driver, um, that was in 2016. And he, if you've not heard of this case, he was dubbed Canada's first suicide bomber. Um, and we actually went very close to where you guys are for that one. Cause that was in Strathroy, Ontario. In terms of how quick we need to deploy, this one was probably one of the fastest. We had a call around dinner time one evening on the 14th. Um, and, and it was like, go pack up 
you're heading to Strathroy because a bomb just went off in a car. And that was all the information we had. And we left at about three o'clock in the morning. And when I say we, we have, um, we have a team, like a team that deploys like an, a national sort of explosives deployment team that goes out together. And that usually consists of one or two explosive chemists, such as myself, um, some IDENT officers and some bomb techs. Um, and for this one, there was four of us that came from Ottawa. There was one bomb tech, one IDENT officer, and two of us from the lab. So two chemists from the lab. And that was probably one of the most interesting cases that I worked on in terms of understanding terrorism and how prevalent it is in this country and how protected the general population is from the knowledge of it. Another example of how very fortunate it is that we have great relationships with other countries, mm-hmm. in the UK and, and the US and you know the five eyes, they talk about the five eyes, Australia, New Zealand, because it really is like a, a global effort against terrorism. It really is. And in this case with Aaron Driver, we happened to be tipped off by the FBI. And thankfully we were because we were able to get there in time to prevent him from successfully completing his mission. You know, he's a young man with unfortunately a very poor opinion of Canada mm-hmm. and our involvement overseas. Um, he was radicalized quite young. Mm-hmm. He had originally converted to Islam religion, but peacefully he was not violent, but that sort of spiraled very quickly for him. He got into a very dark place and it's very common for young men, I'll say, and and probably young women, but we see it more with men that just feel very isolated and alone and have no sense of community anywhere and are just looking for somewhere to belong, Mm -hmm. become radicalized. Yeah. Because it gives them a sense of purpose and it gives them a community Mm -hmm. to with. Um, And unfortunately, they prey on people like Aaron Driver, but still to this day, we don't know what his target was, was. But I mean, he left his house with a backpack full of explosives and and he was going to complete that mission. You know, fortunately for us, when he came out of his residence and got into a taxi cab is when the RCMP engaged him um, and he initiated his device in the backseat of the cab. Luckily, the construction of it, we'll leave it at that. It so that only his initiator, so the small amount of explosives that he was using to initiate the main charge, only that small amount is what initiated. So in our world, we call that a partial detonation. And because only that small amount did, you know, they both survived that blast. So how was the cab driver? (laughs) Cab driver survived, um, believe it or not, with no injuries at all, not a scratch on him. Um, Luckily, when the police came up the driveway and engaged them, he sort of le- leaned over mm-hmm. either to grab his money or his personal belongings because he knew, okay, well, we're not leaving here anytime soon. You know, they're here for you. Um, and he went to grab his personal belongings and his money. And by bending over like that and leaning over into his seat, he became completely sheltered from his seat. Because in the device, there was ball bearings, which is uh, typical to add some sh- their device because they want to kill and injure people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he just became completely protected from all of it. Also being a partial detonation, you know, it wasn't the full blast. He was able to walk away from that. I'm not going to say happily, you know, I think there might still be a civil suit in courts for that because 
you know, and, and, um, understandably, how could you let me pull up into that driveway knowing that there might be someone in there that had really, you know, um, so yeah, with that case, man, it gets hot in the South. It was in August of 2016 and we were sitting there in these, you know, head to toe covered up in our Tyvek suits and just sweating buckets trying to process that scene. You know, there were two investigations going on. Um, you know, Aaron Driver, he was killed by the police intervention. And so that was one investigation going on. So we had the OPP there doing that side of the investigation. And then the RCMP, we did the whole terrorism side of the investigation wow. into what explosive he used and how the device was constructed and, and all of that. Now, that was one of them. The other one was the year before. Um, and this one's kind of fun because it gave me like very much a Hollywood moment with that one where I was in New York on a conference in New York. And I was there with some, some friends that I work with. I'll call them friends, but you know, um, bomb techs. I was there with a uh, chemist from uh, national defense. I was there with intelligence agency people and we were sitting in this auditorium one day and they put up a phone number and they said, because we couldn't bring our cell phones in um, because the, the material is so sensitive. And so they put up a phone number on the screen and they said, you know, if your agency needs to get in touch with you for any reason, this is the number they call. And I just remember going like, I'm not that important. You know, like I don't need to write that down. And, you know, sure enough, the next day um, we're all sitting there again and they put up the phone number and I was like, okay. And somebody comes walking up all the way up to the top of the auditorium where we're sitting and, and someone, I have no idea who he is. And he goes, are you Melanie? I said, yes. He said, are you Melanie Brochu? I said, yes. He said, you need to come with me. And I thought, okay. And I, I walked down and I walked out with him and he said, your agency's trying to get in touch with you. You have to leave. You have to go back to Canada. They're, they need you back home. And I said, okay. I thought, certainly I thought it was a joke because I scoffed it off the day before. Right. But no, it was a case out in Halifax. And so they sent a, then my Hollywood moment was they sent an RCMP plane to come pick me up. Um, and I took the jet back to Halifax and I thought, well, yep. if this doesn't. No, I've made it. <laughs> well, like, woo, I felt important in that moment. But that was a Chris Phillips case. And that was a very intelligent gentleman who had all kinds of degrees, mm -hmm. chemistry degrees. He had gone to dentistry school. Very, very well-educated man. I think he did work for uh, the American military, but was let go because he had some mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, but he was living in Halifax and had a very poor opinion of police and had a very toxic chemical in his possession. And he had told his friends and his wife that he was going to take a trip to Ottawa and he was going to take this toxic chemical with him. And he was going to ensure that he would get pulled over and he would throw this toxic chemical at police and hopefully kills them. And so, but what happened with that was when they went into his cottage, it was a cottage filled with industrial grade lab equipment and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chemical bottles. And then they just said, okay, the bomb techs just stepped back and said, this is, this is way beyond our scope. And deal with and so that that case was very interesting because um it did go to court but i got to work very closely with the health canada chemists on the drug side 
kind of the first time we leveraged using cameras on the bomb techs or on the IDENT officers going into the scene. So to keep us safe, we got to sit in a trailer and just watch them go through each cabinet with their camera and say, yay or nay, is this a problem or is this okay? Um, and we spent a few days there just pulling chemicals out, disposing of them or putting them aside for disposal. So there was no explosives there, mm-hmm. but there probably, you know, he could have made some. Um, and that's kind of why I ended up going to court to testify on that case, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, well, what was possible? What did he have in possession and what was possible? What could he have made? They're harmless on their own, but when they go together, it's not so, not so good. <laughs> Really, it's not illegal to have chemicals in your possession. Right. But if you're synthesizing explosives, and that's where you get into trouble. Do they have little, like, I, I want to say like a drone, but do they ever use um, something mechanical to go in to go check things? Or do you need that human element for most of those things? So. Set it off, too. There, there are drones that get used more so usually to map an area. So if, you know, if a bomb has gone off and we want aerial view imaging, I suppose, um, we have used them for that. Now, that's not me, clearly, but there is a unit that does operate the drones itself. But in terms of just acquiring intelligence, sending them in, I don't think so yet. I, I Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, okay. It tends to really... You know, you really, the problem with doing that is if something needs to be moved or turned so that we can see what it is, or, you know, what's the risk of that drone hitting something and knocking it over. And, you know, that could be enough to initiate some explosives in some cases. So I think you really need the human element still at this time, for sure. Me me watching too much CSI, apparently. So so all that is pretty intense. Like, you know, the different working on the cases. And again, I'm sure that much of your job is that you have to spend a lot of time being very meticulous and organized and, and, and in on your game. So when you're not on your game, what do you do to create that sort of work-life balance? And do, what do you do for your self-care hobbies, things like that to keep yourself, like you got to bring yourself down. I'm sure that because coming home from a day after work like that, it's got to be, you know. Yeah. It's, active. you know, it can be long days and it's exhausting um, for sure. You know, I think for me, I think the best investment I've ever made in myself is just keeping myself healthy mm-hmm. so that the recovery from those really long days or really just trying days where you're just, you have to be on the entire time because you make one mistake or you slip up once and that could injure someone, right? Or that could cause a type of injury or, or someone's cost someone's life. So you know, I just, I work out and I eat well, and that sounds so simple, but I think it's, it's really made a huge difference, um, in terms of my energy and my ability to recover from those days. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, love hanging out with my kids. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just, they, they understand when I have a long day, right? Like I think, and, and for them, they want to help me through those days. You know, those days where mommy's just really tired, like they, they're fine with just sitting with me and, and letting me decompress on those days, which is brilliant, you know. But yeah, I, you know, for fun, I still play volleyball, you know, at 42. Why not? I still play beach volleyball. So that's also, I guess, another physical activity that I love to do. I don't want this to sound corny, but just like personal growth stuff, you know, like I'm really obsessed with that. Just like not just the physical health, but the mental health side. Love it. Uh, yeah. 
I think it's actually probably nice for your girls to watch this because you don't talk, maybe tell these stories with them. So it's kind of, it might be more empathetic when mom comes home tired. (laughs) You know, I share a lot with them. I think it's, it's really fun for them to feel involved. And there's even been times where we've had like a canine training day and I've had to run out to get something and and I take them with me so they can see, you know, what my world is like on days like that. And they love it. Right. Like they love it. They call me a nerd all the time, but (laughs) they still think I'm pretty cool. But I think it's just so important to me to involve them in, into all the things that I do so that if I have them and I still want to get a workout in because that day was just really going to ease the stress and attention, Mm -hmm. then I invite to join me in that, you know, it's like just making them, I think it's important for them to see that side. It's important for them to see me stressed and, and how I, what I do to cope with the stress. I'm sure you're yeah. setting an example and sort of yeah. showing yeah. what you're doing. No, that's yeah. fantastic. You know, kids um, just, they just want to be around you, right? Like they just, yeah. So they're good for us because then we, they get to the point when they get older and then they stop liking you and won't hang out with you. So you know, embrace these moments. Trust me. <laughs> Mine still sort of likes me, so I'm okay for now. But um, okay, so we always like to talk about sort of the mentorship piece um, with the speaker series because um, I think it's a very, very important piece of the puzzle and and kind of forming young minds and and helping them succeed. So, who has served as your uh, mentor or an influencer along kind of your path and uh, helped you along the way, like? Did you have anybody that stood out to you that you can think of or, and I know you do a little bit of mentoring too, if you can speak that, that we'd we'd love to hear about that too. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to share about that. I'm sort of lucky that I've always had a very strong support system around me and I was kind of raised by some very strong women. And so, um, first and foremost, them, I think for creating the independence in me and that sort of um, perseverance and go get her and never give up and get things done type of attitude for sure came from those women in my life. Forensics, you know, I think Dr. Fairgree from Laurentian University definitely fostered that love. Like I think his passion for what he did was admirable. And I thought, I want some of that. I want to be that passionate about what I do um, every day. You know, there was one manager that does stand out in my mind that, you know, she when I finished college, I went to college for chemistry because they had an internship program with the chemistry um, section of the RCMP. And so I went back to college after university and just to get this internship. And when I got in, it was this woman who was the manager of the unit at the time. And there was something about her, like she was just a force. You know, she was so knowledgeable and so confident and so assured and just took care of her people. Like she was the perfect model for what a manager should be, you know, Uh, maybe not so much for upper management. She was probably more of a thorn in their side, but in terms of her taking care of her team, but also walking the walk and being knowledgeable and being out there and fostering all these relationships with the different agencies and giving us a name out there, you know, she definitely stands out and she took me under her wing. And when she couldn't hire me out of my internship, she still stayed in touch and said, I will get you back here one day as soon as I have a spot, you know? And so it was kind of nice to have that like sort of cheerleader in your corner that was like, yeah, you you deserve to be here. I want you here. Mm -hmm. I just don't 
box for you yet, but when I do, I'm going to come back and get you. So just stay here, do what you got to do to stay here in the lab. So I can just come get you when, when we're ready kind of thing. So, you know, those are definitely the ones that stand out in terms of people that I looked up to, mm-hmm. you know, there's real mentorship program the way there are today, which I think is amazing. We didn't really have that back then, mm-hmm. but you sort of hung on to these people that like had these qualities that you wish you had, you know? So that was kind of like, well, I'd really like to be more like that. So I'm going to stay close to you. So that's, that was kind of our mentorship programs at yeah. the time. <laughs> but yeah, so when this opportunity came up, so there's a program through McGill University. It's an NSERC funded program and it's called Promote. I knew nothing about the program when the call for um, mentors came through and it came through by email to our lab. Um, I think it was sent to one contact person at the lab and then it was distributed to women mm-hmm. because specifically targeted to women in the science industry at the time. I read up on it and I thought I absolutely want to do that because I think there's so much value in having someone you can just talk to about what it's like mm-hmm. when you're in your field and you're working for a company or you're working for the government or you're working wherever, what is it really like after school? Mm-hmm. You know, how hard is it? You know, what's that transition like? And so this promote cro- program, so I hope I get like it, I hope I get it right, but it's program molecules for therapeutic sensing and diagnostics. So it's very much like a biotech focused, I think 11 or 12 researchers and there's six different universities that are involved in it and their students are global. I think there's one in Russia, there's um, one in Colombia. And so it's not just in Canada, which I thought was absolutely amazing. What they offer is the one-on-one mentoring. Mm -hmm. And so a student gets partnered with a mentor and they meet once a month for the length of the year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we just, we have our topics of discussions laid out for us and we just spend the time together and discuss. And so I think it's pretty great because it just, it allows them to sort of see what the transition was like for us at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, mistakes we've made, the lessons we've learned. Um, We talk about, you know, we talk about work-life balance, right? We talk about what were the greatest challenges for you Mm -hmm. when you transitioned, you know, if you could tell yourself something to, to the you 12 years ago, what would it be? What would have helped? You know, what would you have liked to have known? Mm-hmm. And so I think those conversations are just so important to have and so helpful. And we also go through the other things like, okay, let's look at your LinkedIn profile, you know, let's go over your CV and, and what should be important to be in there or not. Or, mm-hmm. um, and so I've been with the same student for two years now. Um, her name is Gabrielle, as you know, and like, I just enjoy my time with her so much. Like, I can't tell you, and I hope she does too, but like, we've just formed this really great bond. And unfortunately with COVID, we can't meet in person, but I'm, I'm dying to get her to the lab to show her, you know, what we do here, even though that's not really the industry she's focusing on. I think it's just really cool. Is she, um, is she on today? Did you, uh, did she sign up? We don't know. I think she is on. Yeah. Love the shout out. There you go. So we have, uh, we'll send you recording after so if not then she can check it out later too in here because that's okay. I think that's important too for them to know that again because you do learn from your mentee as well like they're teaching you things as well like you mentioned your kids teaching you things but also being a mentor you learn from your mentees as well so and it's so funny that you bring up that topic but 
uh, of things that you talk about. But our last question is always, what are those, la- what are pieces of advice do you have uh, for the women in our STEM club or really anyone in STEM that, um, because even if, if we're older, we're still always looking for that. You know, you're always looking to, to, to move up, right. And, and, and better yourself. So the, I guess the advice hits for everybody, but even though we're focusing on the uh, women in STEM, so what, what would you tell 19 year old Melanie? How much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> All the time you need. <laughs> okay, so if we're going to talk about a woman in a male-dominated field, right? And so, you know, in the lab, I can't say that the lab that I work in is male-dominated, but when I go out to the field, mm-hmm. it's entirely male-dominated. For the part, we do have female bomb techs, but I'm, you know, ninety-five percent of the people there are male. Mm-hmm. They're officers, so they're alpha males right? You have the special forces guys, like you have the military, you have all these very strong men. And then, you know, someone like me that came in at that time that was young and just desperate to fit in. I was so desperate to fit in and thought I needed to fit in so badly that it became a detriment to me. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think the best piece of advice is like really rely on your knowledge and re- like find that confidence in you to be you you don't need to fit in because really what becomes respected is your ability to do your job right you don't need to be everyone's friend they're looking to you for the answers mm-hmm. and so it took me a while because i feel like i really used my femininity in a way that was really disturbing to me. Like it was a a huge disservice, Mm -hmm. right? But I thought I needed to. I thought that's how I was going to gain the respect. Whereas today, you know, I don't need to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be the friendly, like people pleaser, you know? And so I think that's one piece of advice in a woman, as a woman in a man dominated environment, be unapologetically female Mm -hmm. and then move on, right? It doesn't, need to be the thing they remember about you figure out your strengths and lean on those and and use your voice and and don't play small mm-hmm. and yeah the other thing i would say is i think what i loved most about my career was how challenging it was i think had i not been in chemistry i'm not sure i would have been as happy in my career as i am today and i think that's because it was challenging for me And I think to continue to seek to grow and to learn is like a must. It's absolutely a must. Like you have to seek growth and and challenges and and you have to just lean into those hard times because that's where you learn the most. Definitely. That would be another one is just seek to work somewhere where you're growing every day and you're challenged every day. And if that's not at your work, then you go do it as a side gig right? You go, we've talked about that, you know, and I don't say that because I think everyone needs to have a side gig. I really don't. I I think, um, we all do it for different reasons, but that might be another place where you need to grow. And so for me, I have my own side gig and I leverage that to be able to give back to communities, Mm -hmm. uh, organizations that, that are important to me, um, that have some significance to me. And so, you know, a few, organizations that I've worked with uh, locally are the butterfly run. We do 
chemo care packages every year for the Sudbury Cancer Center. It's nice. also um, Dress for Success in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't heard of those organizations, I strongly recommend you look into it if ever you're looking for a place to give back. Anyone here locally for the Butterfly Run and uh, Dress for Success is across the country and in the U.S. as well. No, that's awesome. And I think that's that's a very big part is that that giving back and and that sense of community because without that, people we can't grow. You know what I mean? If everyone's, it's always about them. You have to be able to give back and share your knowledge and help that person along the way. And you don't even realize the people that you affect because years later, you know, I'll have people say, yeah, you, you told me this before and it totally changed my perspective of my life. And I'm like, yeah. really? I was just saying that offhandedly. You didn't even realize it. So, you know, when you're actually putting effort into mentoring, um, I think it makes such a difference for people. So, no, it's great. Good for you. Yeah. You know, I think what I, you know, what social media has given us is that people are always listening and they're always watching, right? And I think, you know, you post something and, and, or you've taught on a course and you think nobody's going to remember that. No, people are listening. So yeah, it's, it's, it's important to use that responsibly, I think. And remember those things that, you know, people are always watching and, you know, there's like this one, I have to just say this and I'll stop talking, I promise. But there's this one. About you. you can talk as much as you want. <laughs> that I love. So I, went, I got to go see Michelle Obama a few years ago, oh, cool. Ottawa. Um, and there, like the one thing that stayed with me was she said, kids can't be what they can't see. And I was like, mind blown by that because I had never thought of it that way. And it's the same with everyone in your community it's not really just kids but if someone you know and that's why I think it's so important for me to include my kids in all of it even in all the the charitable work that I do they're involved in that you know because they need to see what it's like to give back but sometimes you just have to show people like people just need to see it to know it's possible Mm -hmm. right because so many times we hold ourselves back and we say like oh well I mean she can do that but I could never do that Mm -hmm. right no, yeah, you actually can. And here's how easy it is, you know, because I'm going to show you. <laughs> just yeah. watch, yeah, you know. Watch me. Yeah, just watch me. Yeah. I, I think it that uh, speaks to the whole thing where people always say, just say yes. When somebody asks you, do you want to do this? Yes. Yes, I do. And yeah. you know what I mean? And and truly want to do it. Don't do it because you do, you're doing it something against your will. But just saying yes and having experiences and yeah. going forth, like it just builds on that. So, and I love the piece about you talked about, um, you know, keeping yourself kind of, I guess that entertained by having your side gig, or we call always call it the side hustle. And I have always had two or three things going on the side, despite my main, my main job, just because I, it's, I like to keep, uh, it's not the keeping busy, but I like that, that the hustle and bustle of that. And the, you know, that, that side piece is a lot to it. It's not about making money. It's about just keeping busy and and being active and experiencing things that you enjoy doing, you know, things that you like right? And every time you step out of your comfort zone, oh. right? Because meeting new people, you're learning new things. You know, it's just to me, well, I always most joy as well out of giving back. It's so rewarding and in, in such a different way from, from your career. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And we appreciate you giving back by coming and speaking with us tonight and sharing your story and, and, uh, and all the things that go along with it and your words of wisdom. So that's wonderful. So usually at the end, we always do uh, sort of a uh, rapid fire kind of just quick lighthearted questions too. So I'm going to give you kind of the easy things just come top of your head, whatever comes to mind. (laughs) Uh, What is your current Netflix Netflix binge? What are you watching? 
nothing. You're not. Are you not? Oh, and what was the last one? Oh my gosh. Uh, Queen's Gambit was probably the last thing I've. So yeah. good. So, so good. It was really, really good. Okay. Uh, most used emoji. The fireball one mm-hmm. or the dance lady. Yeah. The fireball <laughs> one. Is that fun? Okay. Got it. Audiobook or hardcover? Uh, audio lately um, yeah. because I don't have time to always sit and read um, unless I'm on vacation, but um, I prefer, I prefer a book. Okay. Of having time audio. to sit and read yeah. a book. That's the problem. I need a vacation. That's what we're, we all need a vacation. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait to travel. Um, okay. Fries or salad? Salad. Yeah. And your first concert. Oh, I think it was the offspring or Alica. Oh. Oh, man, I'm from small town. <laughs> She's a rock girl. I love it. Very much <laughs> Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so um, on that note, thank you so much for joining us and supporting the St. Clair College uh, Women in STEM Club. And again, thank you uh, to our guest Mel, who uh, was a great speaker today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks, Mel. Thank you for tuning in to the St. Clair College Women in STEM Speaker Series podcast, highlighting women trailblazers who have excelled in male-dominated industries and environments. If you're a St. Clair College student who would like more information on the Women in STEM Club, or you're a woman working in STEM or a leader in your field and are interested in being featured on our podcast or acting as a mentor for one of the incredible young women in our STEM Club, you can email us at stem at stclaircollege.ca to sign up. Be sure to connect with us on social media at St. Clair Genesis. For more information on the Genesis Entrepreneurship Center, or for details on our workshops and entrepreneurial resources, you can visit our website at www.stclaircollege.ca genesis. If you'd like this episode, please make sure to let us know by leaving a review and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much for joining us and supporting St. Clair College, the Genesis Entrepreneurship Center, and Women in STEM. Until next time.